It's the summer of 1987, and there are still a few glorious weeks left before school starts. It's been an amazing summer for movies, and it feels like every week there's a bigger hit than the week before it. So you and your friends head back out to the theater. But now there's a longer line than you've seen all summer, and all for good reason. There's a buzz in the air about a new film. Not only does it seem like everyone's seen it, but they keep going back to see it again. I'm Jamie Logie, and this is Everything 80s, a podcast that looks back on a decade that forever changed the way we dress, consume, and connected. And today, it's a look back on the movie that nobody believed in, but it went on to become a box office hit, a timeless classic, and one of the defining movies of the entire 1980s. This is a history of Dirty Dancing. If you were of a certain age during the summer of 1987, I don't have to tell you how big Dirty Dancing was. It's a classic coming-of-age story, an era-defining movie, and a pop culture phenomenon. But it's almost a miracle that it ever even reached theaters. Let's begin with a quick synopsis. Dirty Dancing begins with a black and white musical segment featuring dancers and is set to the song Be My Baby by the Ronettes. These opening credits set the tone for both the dancing and the music. The movie is set in the summer of 1963. Frances Houseman, better known as Baby, is heading up to the Catskills for the family's summer vacation. We then meet Johnny Castle, and he's got rebellious bad boy written all over him. While at the resort, Baby stumbles upon the staff at one of their parties where they are dirty dancing, a phrase never actually used in the movie, only in the title for it. Baby and Johnny finally meet, and when Baby steps in to dance with Johnny for a performance at another resort, this causes the two of them to spend a lot of time together so Johnny can make her a credible dancer. Baby and Johnny pull off the dance performance except for a lift at the end as Baby just can't do it. Because of all the time together, the two spark up a romance much to the chagrin of Baby's father. Johnny ends up being fired, and at the end of season talent show, he shows back up and tells her family that nobody puts Baby in the corner. Baby and Johnny perform their dance, which ends with the two doing a perfect lift, with Baby being held in the air over Johnny. A move that Jennifer Grey shared in a 2015 interview with The Guardian that she only did for the first time on the day they shot it. She hadn't even rehearsed it and has never done it since. What you see in the movie is the first time she ever did this move. So to have a famous line or scene in a movie really sets a film apart. An iconic line or scene that is remembered for decades puts a movie in rarefied air with other films that have become timeless classics for them. Having an iconic line or an iconic scene can make a movie last forever. Dirty Dancing has one of each. 
the line, nobody puts baby in the corner, a line that Patrick Swayze said he hated at first, is right up there with some of the most famous lines in movie history, like, say hello to my little friend, I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse, or no, I am your father. The American Film Institute even includes the line in their list of the 100 best movie quotes of all time. The lift during the final dance sequence is also one of those defining images in film. And both the scene and that line help make dirty dancing timeless. At its core, Dirty Dancing is a simple and classic coming-of-age story about two people from different worlds who meet and fall in love. Baby is from a wealthy elite family, and Johnny is a lower-class but good-looking rebel who plays by his own rules. It's Romeo and Juliet, but with more Mambo. The two shouldn't have crossed paths, but they do, and they are brought together through dance. Dirty Dancing stars Patrick Swayze as Johnny Castle. Swayze was relatively well-known after movies like The Outsiders, Youngblood, and Red Dawn, which has an interesting connection to Dirty Dancing that I'll get back to in a moment. But Dirty Dancing put Patrick Swayze into superstar status. Swayze, a lifelong and classically trained dancer and singer, was perfect for the role. And more on the singing and music in a bit, too. Jennifer Grey plays Baby. Grey, one of those defining 1980s performers, was in the movie The Cotton Club and played Ferris Bueller's sister in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Speaking of that, Matthew Broderick, who plays Ferris Bueller, is in the audience at the end of Dirty Dancing in an uncredited cameo. Jennifer Grey also appeared in 1984's Red Dawn alongside Patrick Swayze. The rest of the cast features some incredibly talented performers from the world of stage and screen. Jerry Orbach plays Dr. Jake Hausman, Baby's father. Orbach, a legendary performer, was in everything from Bye Bye Birdie and Guys and Dolls up to some 80s classics like The Golden Girls. Who's the Boss, and Murder, She Wrote. Orbach was also Lenny Briscoe in Law and Order. Kelly Bishop plays Baby's mother, Marjorie. Bishop played Emily Gilmore on The Gilmore Girls and won a Tony Award for a chorus line. Jane Brucker plays Lisa, Baby's older sister. In the 80s, Brucker also appeared on One Life to Live and Miami Vice. Cynthia Rhodes plays Penny Johnson. Rhodes appeared in some other big 1980s dance-based movies like Flashdance and Staying Alive. She also appeared in Xanadu from 1980, a musical fantasy film that not only starred Olivia Newton-John, but Gene Kelly in his final role. You may also remember Cynthia Rhodes from playing the role of Jamie in Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Jack Weston plays Max Kellerman, the owner of the resort. Weston is a Tony Award-nominated actor. And if you're a fan of The Honeymooners, Weston appeared in Ed Norton's favorite show, Captain Video, in his Video Rangers. Weston also appeared in shows like All in the Family, 
The Carol Burnett Show, and appeared in Short Circuit 2. Lonnie Price plays the role of Neil, the son of the owner of the resort. Lonnie Price also played the role of Ronnie Crawford in The Muppets Take Manhattan. And we can't forget about Wayne Knight, a.k.a. Newman from Seinfeld, in the role of Stan. But there are two other major characters, if you will, that define Dirty Dancing. The dancing and the music. Let's start with the music, as the film combines classic hits along with some modern songs that quickly became massive hits in their own right. Besides opening with the song Be My Baby, Dirty Dancing also features classics like Stay by Maurice Williams and the Zodiacs, Do You Love Me by The Contours, Big Girls Don't Cry by The Four Seasons, In the Still of the Night by The Five Satins, and Love is Strange by Mickey and Sylvia. Then there are several original songs included in Dirty Dancing, such as Hungry Eyes by Eric Carmen and She's Like the Wind, sung by Patrick Swayze. And probably most famous is the song I've Had the Time of My Life by Bill Medley and Jennifer Warnes. The song featured at the end of the movie, and according to People magazine, only selected the night before filming, is one of those defining 1980s songs. And this brings up a somewhat bizarre occurrence. Released in 1987, I've Had the Time of My Life clearly exists in our real world, but somehow also exists in the Dirty Dancing universe, as Johnny has a copy of it and we see him singing along to the words. The song had a lot of modern production compared to what they were listening to then. So how does Johnny have access to a song that won't be released for 24 years? Feels like there's a little Dirty Dancing Back to the Future crossover in there somewhere. But then there is the dancing in Dirty Dancing. Choreographed by Kenny Ortega, the movie, besides the dancing of the dirty variety, also features a wide range of styles like the mambo and the cha-cha. Ortega began as an actor before moving into choreography and directing. Besides Dirty Dancing, Ortega worked on the choreography for things like Xanadu, Pretty in Pink, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and choreographed the music videos Physical by Olivia Newton-John and Material Girl by Madonna. Patrick Swayze was a classically trained dancer. Jennifer Grey was not. And Kenny Ortega used their real-life dynamic that was a mix of conflict and affection to help fuel the on-screen chemistry between Johnny and Baby. Dirty Dancing was written by Eleanor Bergstein and loosely based on her own life. In an interview for the Greenwich International Film Festival, Bergstein explains how she used to go to the Catskills in upstate New York when she was younger. While her parents played golf, she hit the dance studio. She eventually learned to dance the cha-cha and mambo and danced with the professionals winning the nightly contests. In high school, Bergstein, who grew up in Brooklyn, also dirty danced at parties. 
Based on a lot of her own experiences, she put together a script, but there wasn't much interest in it. Bergstein says that, quote, even though I had many pages of dance description in it and a cassette of the soundtrack called from my old 45s, I sent it all around together with no success. Apparently, the script was rejected over 40 times until a smaller studio called Vestron decided to take a chance. That ended up being a good idea. With a great cast in place, production on Dirty Dancing began in September 1986. The setting of the movie in 1963 was significant, as this year signified a change at that point in American history. It's seen as a key turning point between the past and the future. This was the year of the I Have a Dream speech by Martin Luther King, and also the year of the Kennedy assassination. Music-wise, 1963 is also significant as there is about to be a changing of the guard in the world of music as a new mop-haired group from Liverpool, England is about to hit North American shores the next year. Even though Dirty Dancing is set in the Catskills, filming took place at Mountain Lake Resort in Pembroke, Virginia. Because of the already existing location, Dirty Dancing wasn't expensive to make. Reports on the budget range from $4.5 million up to $6 million. But even at the high end, it was significantly less than most other feature films at the time. The shoot also lasted for only 43 days. But production was going into the fall of 1986 and things were getting cold. The leaves were changing color and needed to be spray painted green. According to People Magazine, the scenes of Johnny and Baby practicing in the water couldn't be shot in close-up because the actors' mouths were turning blue. Add to that the bout of food poisoning that struck Jennifer Grey and you have quite a difficult movie shoot. But if that wasn't enough, real-life tension between Patrick Swayze and Jennifer Grey threatened to derail the entire movie. Everything 80s will return after these messages. Almost as famous as Dirty Dancing is the tension between Patrick Swayze and Jennifer Grey. According to IMDb, this all started way back in 1984 on the set of Red Dawn. In an interview with ABC News, Gray says she didn't like Swayze's pranks and just didn't trust him. Gray apparently just disliked Patrick Swayze and begged them to have anyone but him in the role of Johnny. Gray found him not only tough to work with, but felt that the two had zero chemistry and how hard this was going to be in her first leading role. Even though Winona Ryder and Sarah Jessica Parker were considered, Swayze after the two had a long and tear-filled conversation, convinced Gray to be in Dirty Dancing. But the two still didn't exactly get along off-screen, and some of that spilled over to what you see on-screen. In an interview with the American Film Institute, Swayze explains how frustrated he would often get, especially during the scenes of the two of them rehearsing the dance. 
Swayze explains that the scenes with Gray laughing and him getting visibly annoyed wasn't Johnny and Baby, but Patrick and Jennifer. But the two did end up bonding and spoke highly of each other in the coming years, while still creating true on-screen chemistry. Dirty Dancing featured some high-end talent, great music, and amazing dancing. It wasn't expensive to make, but there still weren't a lot of expectations for it. Quote, we had no hope of any impact of anything at all, writer Eleanor Bergstein shared with the Greenwich International Film Festival. Quote, we were told repeatedly, even by our studio producers, that it was a movie that would go straight to video bins after a few days in the theater, unquote. Dirty Dancing also tackled big social issues like abortion, Vietnam, and the division of classes. Again, it didn't seem as if there was much faith in this movie reaching audiences, but Bergstein still wanted to incorporate important topics into the movie. In that interview, Bergstein said, quote, I had little hope that anyone would see the movie, and even less hope that it would influence anyone. But just in case, I put in the things that were important to me. Just in case. Unquote. But there was even the chance this thing might not even reach theaters. In a 2017 interview with Today, Eleanor Bergstein shared that one producer told her, quote, burn the negative and take the insurance, unquote. And also that everyone told us what a negligible piece of junk it was. Dirty Dancing, the movie that no one seemed to have a lot of faith in, is set to hit theaters in August of 1987. With no expectations, everyone involved in the movie still held their breath, unaware of what was about to happen. Dirty Dancing was officially released on August 21, 1987. The summer movie season had become a much bigger thing, but many of the big movies were already released earlier in that summer. This was late August, so would audiences still be heading to theaters or winding down their summer vacations and getting ready for back to school? There were also some big movies released in the summer of 87. Movies that appealed to all ages. And I do mean big. Here are just some of those films. La Bamba, The Lost Boys, Back to the Beach, Robocop, Full Metal Jacket, Beverly Hills Cop 2, Adventures in Babysitting, Predator, The Garbage Pail Kids Movie, Who's That Girl, Revenge of the Nerds 2, Superman 4, the Masters of the Universe, the Care Bears movie, and Spaceballs. During such an epic summer, would audiences even be interested in anything else? Were audiences movied out? It turns out they weren't. Because most of the big movies came out earlier, Dirty Dancing had less competition on the weekend it was released, opening alongside Born in East L.A., even with some of the big hits still in theaters, Dirty Dancing managed to open in fourth spot with nearly $4 million at the box office. That's around $11 million when adjusted for inflation. 
even though they had been in the theaters for a while. Dirty Dancing even finished ahead of movies like Robocop, Predator, The Lost Boys, and La Bamba. This was pretty good and kind of unexpected. It may not seem like a lot for an opening weekend, but it wasn't that far off from the opening weekend returns from some other big movies during that summer of 87. The Lost Boys, for example, pulled in just over $5 million its first weekend. Or La Bamba, that took in $5.7 million. This is still in the time when opening weekends weren't necessarily as critical for the success of a movie as they would be in the coming decades. Movies were given more time to steadily grow, and that's what happened with Dirty Dancing. In a pre-internet, social media age, the best type of marketing drove this film. Word of mouth. Dirty Dancing was also attracting more adults than the younger audience which the studio believed would drive whatever success this film might have. And having the still relatively new PG-13 rating may have helped it. A 1997 New York Times article shares that Dirty Dancing actually started out as an R-rated movie, and it took three cuts to get it down to PG-13. The PG-13 rating, which was barely three years old at this point, indicated the movie was not for kids, but it wasn't too over the top and limited to just an adult audience like an R-rated movie. Dirty Dancing still drew in a lot of younger viewers, but it appealed to various age demographics. PG-13 was that perfect sweet spot rating, as it also allowed for more screenings than an R-rated film, which tends to have fewer. And in an interesting coincidence, the very first movie to receive the PG-13 rating, Red Dawn, which starred both Patrick Swayze and Jennifer Grey. Audiences weren't just flocking to theaters to see what all the hype was about. They were coming back, then coming back again, and then again. Soon, Dirty Dancing was the number one movie at the box office and eventually made over $65 million domestically. In today's money, that's nearly $175 million, a staggering amount for a movie that cost, at most, only around $6 million. But that was just the beginning of the story, as the success of Dirty Dancing spread to other countries. According to IMDb, Dirty Dancing finished with a worldwide box office of $214 million. That's over $570 million in today's money. This is a movie that connected with people everywhere, as 60% of the box office revenue for Dirty Dancing came from overseas. The movie that few people believed in was a worldwide phenomenon. Dirty Dancing was the third highest grossing film of 1987, trailing only behind heavyweight films like Beverly Hills Cop 2 and Fatal Attraction. The success of Dirty Dancing spread beyond the box office, because of the movie's popularity, the song I Had the Time of My Life hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100. 
It even won the Academy Award for Best Original Song. And it almost never happened. According to Rolling Stone, the song was released before the movie came out. And with no context or connection to the song, I've had the time of my life bombed in the charts. But when the movie came out, the song took off like a rocket. The Dirty Dancing soundtrack was another thing altogether. With its blend of music from the 60s and 80s, this album was a monster. According to the Recording Industry Association of America, the Dirty Dancing soundtrack sold more than 30 million copies and went 14 times platinum. The soundtrack stayed at number one on Billboard for over four months straight. And according to bestsellingalbums.org, which collects sales data from countries around the world, along with Nielsen's sound scan and chart figures, in 1987, the Dirty Dancing soundtrack was the second best-selling album of the year. 1987 was a big year for movies, and it might have even been a bigger one for albums, as this year featured some of the greatest in history. In 1987, Dirty Dancing outsold Whitney by Whitney Houston, The Joshua Tree by U2, Kick by NXS, Tango in the Night by Fleetwood Mac, Hysteria by Def Leppard, Faith by George Michael, and Appetite for Destruction by Guns N' Roses. The only album that year that outsold Dirty Dancing was Bad by Michael Jackson. This was an astonishing success, considering many of the people buying this album were younger. An album filled with music that their parents listened to was now the hottest item at the record store. This was followed by Dirty Dancing 2, another album release that featured more songs from the movie. It sold another 9 million copies. Dirty Dancing wasn't just a box office hit, it was a pop culture phenomenon. Besides the astonishing sales and success of the soundtrack, the movie's popularity led to an increase in dance classes. There are instructional tutorials for dances from the movie and recreations of the final dance scene still being released on YouTube to this day. This is the reach and power of Dirty Dancing. And the popularity of Dirty Dancing only continued to grow. Not only were more people taking dance classes while the soundtrack dominated the charts, but the film was about to hit home video. At this point, some strategic marketing was employed. In a report entitled The Time of My Life, Marketing Lessons from Dirty Dancing from the Archives of Business Research from the Society for Science and Education, Associate Professor Michael Omansky shares a few things. Omansky, who worked for RCA Records back then, shares how their goal was to keep dirty dancing at the top of people's minds. At first, they had to fight with the stores just to stock the soundtracks, as soundtracks had traditionally not sold well. Radio didn't even want to play The Time of My Life. And as home video continued to grow like wildfire, Dirty Dancing 
was about to hit the rental stores. Omansky explains how the first move was to get the VHS into those big rental stores. Videotapes were going for around $70 back then, so the plan was to saturate the rental market. Then, after about six months, lower the price of the VHS tapes to launch into the consumer outlets for purchase. And it worked. Demand, not surprisingly, was through the roof. Michael Omansky's report shares that people were watching the VHS tapes so many times that the tapes were breaking. This led to even more sales as consumers, quote, rebought the video when the tape from their original copy broke, unquote. Sounds like me, but with Spaceballs. The Dirty Dancing VHS was the number one video rental of 1988 and the first movie to sell a million copies. Copies of the VHS also featured a commercial at the beginning promoting the soundtrack, making it the perfect one-two punch to keep this movie going. But sales of the movie went far beyond just 1988. According to a 1997 New York Times article, 10 years after it was released, Dirty Dancing was still selling 40,000 copies a month. It had been years since I last saw Dirty Dancing, but rewatching this thing back, they captured real magic in 1987. Like The Princess Bride or A New Hope, Dirty Dancing is timeless storytelling, the type that will never go away. These are the films we return to again and again. Dirty Dancing has been introduced to new generations and it continues to resonate with viewers young and old. During an era of classic dance films like Footloose and Flashdance, Dirty Dancing still stood out. Dirty Dancing, the little movie that could, remains a timeless classic to this day. So that's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you're looking for some more 1980s goodness, be sure to check out my previous episodes. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the Everything 80s podcast wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss out on new episodes. If you're a fan of 1980s movies, you may be interested in the Everything 80s movie club over at patreon.com. The Everything 80s movie review podcast is where I review the good, the bad, and the ugly of 1980s movies. Some of those reviews include The Princess Bride, UHF, Stand By Me, Weekend at Bernie's, The Empire Strikes Back, and Pee-wee's Big Adventure. If you want to check that out or learn more, just head on over to patreon.com slash 80s. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash 80s, or click on the link in the description. But that's it for me. I'm Jamie. This has been Everything 80s, but I'll be back soon with a new episode. Don't you dare miss it.